If you have your Bibles with you, I would invite you to turn to the book of 2 Samuel. We're going to be looking this morning at chapter 18 of 2 Samuel. We are now about two-thirds of the way through our journey into the book of 2 Samuel. And we are coming to the conclusion of the incidents with Absalom. Our text this morning will be the first 18 verses of chapter 18. If you would please give attention, for the word of the Lord is completely inerrant. The word of the Lord is completely authoritative. And the word of the Lord is completely sufficient. 2 Samuel chapter 18, beginning at verse 1. Then David mustered the men who were with him, and set over them commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds. And David sent out the army, one-third under the command of Joab, one-third under the command of Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, Joab's brother, and one-third under the command of Ittai, the Gittite. And the king said to the men, I myself will also go out with you. But the men said, You shall not go out, for if we flee, they will not care about us, if half of us die, they will not care about us, but you are worth 10,000 of us. Therefore, it is better that you send us help from the city. The king said to them, whatever seems best to you, I will do. So the king stood at the side of the gate while all the army marched out by hundreds and by thousands. And the king ordered Joab and Abishai and Ittai, deal gently for my sake with the young man Absalom. And all the people heard when the king gave orders to all the commanders about Absalom. So the army went out into the field against Israel, and the battle was fought in the forest of Ephraim. And the men of Israel were defeated there by the servants of David, and the loss there was great on that day, 20,000 men. The battle spread over the face of all the country, and the forest devoured more people that day than the sword. And Absalom happened to meet the servants of David. Absalom was riding on his mule, and the mule went under the thick branches of a great oak, and his head caught fast in the oak, and he was suspended between heaven and earth, while the mule that was under him went on. And a certain man saw it and told Joab, Behold, I saw Absalom hanging in an oak. Joab said to the man who told him, What? You saw him? Why then did you not strike him there to the ground? I would have been glad to give you ten pieces of silver and a belt. But the man said to Joab, Even if I felt in my hand the weight of a thousand pieces of silver, I would not reach out my hand against the king's son. For in our hearing the king commanded you and Abishai and Ittai, For my sake protect the young man Absalom. On the other hand, if I had dealt treacherously against his life, and there is nothing hidden from the king, then you yourself would have stood aloof. Joab said, I will not waste time like this with you. And he took three javelins in his hand and thrust them into the heart of Absalom while he was still alive in the oak. And ten young men, Joab's armor bearers, surrounded Absalom and struck him and killed him. Then Joab blew the trumpet and the troops came back from pursuing Israel. For Joab restrained them. 
And they took Absalom and threw him into a great pit in the forest and raised over him a very great heap of stones. And all Israel fled, every one to his own home. Now Absalom in his lifetime had taken and set up for himself the pillar that is in the king's valley. For he said, I have no son to keep my name in remembrance. He called the pillar after his own name, and it is called Absalom's monument to this day. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray for his blessing upon it. O Lord our God, Lord we ask this morning that you would open up your word to us. That as we hear it, as we study it, that our lives would be changed. Our hearts would be quickened with a love for Jesus that we would follow after Him all the days of our lives. This we ask in Christ's precious name. Amen. We can learn a great deal from what the Bible does not tell us. This chapter is the climax of a story of great intrigue, rebellion, and war. And so we would expect to hear much about the battle itself and the clash of arms. We would expect to see Absalom front and center till the very end. But that's not what we see. What we get is a focus on God's kingdom. God's kingdom work. How the Lord is preserving his kingdom and fulfilling his judgment on Absalom, and in a sense, on David as well. It shouldn't surprise us that the Bible wants us to focus on God. And that's exactly what it does in this chapter. There is a battle before us, but keep your eyes on God. So the very first thing that we see in this chapter is the preparation for battle. The battle has not been enjoined yet, but there is preparation for this battle. The time is come for resolution and for confrontation between the army of Absalom and the army of David. And we see now in this story that the Lord truly has frustrated the counsel of Ahithophel. You remember Ahithophel counseled Absalom to strike quickly that very night to take a small force and go and attack David and to kill David that very night. But Absalom did not consider Ahithophel's counsel, but rather he went with the counsel of Hushai, David's spy, who said, no, 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 you should wait and gather up a massive army and put yourself at the front of that army. That's what you should do. For the Lord had determined to destroy Absalom. Well, if we had any doubts that Ahithophel was right, they're revealed here. David has now had time, thanks to Hushai, to gather up his troops. We see this in verse 1. David mustered the men who were with him. And instead of having a ragtag band of about 2,000 men who are accompanied with women and children as they're fleeing the city, now they are numbered in the thousands. 
We see in verse 1 that David has commanders of hundreds and commanders of thousands. And then later on, as the army leaves the city, in verse 4, they leave by thousands. So men have flocked to David's banner. His forces have grown. They are still less than Absalom's, but David now has a force capable of winning in battle. And David's men, moreover, are experienced soldiers, loyal to him. We've heard their names before in battles against Abner, against the Ammonites, and against the Philistines. They are Joab, the commander of the army, his brother Abishai, and Ittai, the Gittite. All these three now are placed in charge of David's army. And, and keep in mind that the exact opposite is the case for Absalom, where David now has a cohesive force that is loyal to him, commanded by experienced generals. Absalom's best advisor, Ahithophel, is dead. And his remaining advisor, Hushai, is David's spy. So he doesn't exactly have the best of advisors. And his commander that we met in the last chapter, Amasa, we've never heard of before. He doesn't appear in all of David's other battles, so I don't think it's a stretch for us to think that he has little experience in commanding troops. So Absalom has a bunch of men that he's gathered together by conscription. They're not particularly loyal to him. He has no good advisors, or rather his advisors actually pro-David, and he has an inexperienced general. And then, of course, we can't forget that we have Absalom who is more fashion model than warrior. He's at the head of this army. And all of this should remind us that it is the Lord who is directing things. In Absalom's day and in our day, men think that they are in charge of events. If they just act in the best way possible, everything will turn out the way they want it to. But at this point... We arrive at the battle, not because of man's wisdom, but because of God's decree. How easy is it for us to miss this? To either be too confident or too discouraged. Because we look all around us and we forget to look to the Lord. The Lord is in every circumstance of life. In all our relationships, in all of our jobs, in everything that we do, we have to remember that God is not absent. He is in control. Well, the final preparations are then made in the next few verses of chapter 18, verses 2 through 4. David tells them that he has decided to go out with the army. Now, why would David make this proclamation? It may be that David remembered the many times when he went out and fought. David was an experienced man of war. He had fought personally on the battlefield against the Philistines, against the Ammonites, against other forces of tribes in the area. And he might have thought that he could personally affect the outcome of the battle. And so he should go. Or it may be that David knew that he was responsible for this war. That it was his sin 
that was being judged, that it was his mistakes with Absalom that had caused this very conflict. And he didn't want to send others out to fight without going himself. Now, we're not told why David made this decision, but we are told that David's men would have none of it. They dissuade him from going because they know what this battle is all about. It's almost as if they were sitting in the council room hearing the counsel of Ahithophel. They know this is no ordinary battle. It's not just about armies. It's about David the king. It's about the Lord's anointed and his kingdom. Because after all, if they win the battle and lose David, then all is lost. And if they lose the battle, but David is safe, they will have the means to keep fighting on. And they say to David, you are worth 10,000 of us, so stay here in the city. I want you to see here that the Lord wants us to focus on what is significant. Are you tempted to look out in the world and see what's going on and to be overwhelmed? Do you forget what's significant in your life because of all the noise that surrounds you? For example, does all of the news about the economy stop you from sitting down and making your own family budget? You say to yourself, well, if inflation is rising, and I don't know how many ships are on the coast of California, and I don't know what will happen with the deficit, and I don't know what will happen with the economy, why should I even bother to make a budget? What difference could that make in all of the world? And the truth is that your budget won't change the American economy. But your budget is important in your life for you to be a faithful steward of what the Lord has given to you. Another example might be that we might look around and see all of the controversies that are rearing their heads in the church, in the PCA, in the American church, and throughout the world. And we might be so consumed with these controversies that we forget to do our daily Bible reading and our daily prayer. We wonder if that really makes any difference at all when we see all of this, these things crashing around us. God wants you to stop and to focus. He wants you to focus on what He has told you to do. He wants you not to be distracted by circumstances, but rather to hear from Him in His Word and to follow Him. Well, David then gives a final confusing instruction in the preparations for battle. We see this in verse 5. He orders Joab and Abishai and Ittai, deal gently for my sake with the young man Absalom. Now, remember the context that this is set in. They are going off into battle. These men may lose their lives. They are loyal to David and they are fighting to save his kingdom. And all of this is happening only because of the wicked rebellion of Absalom. And so what does David want? He wants them to deal gently with Absalom. What? David is more concerned with the enemy? And he makes sure that everyone knows this. He doesn't just pull the generals aside into a, a side room and say to them, you know, I want you to do this if it's possible. No, he shouts it out for everyone to hear. The common soldier knows that David's main concern is for the leader of the enemy. 
Now, there is one positive aspect to this command. And it's that David is sure of victory. Because his order only makes sense if they win. If they lose, it won't be in the power of his commanders to deal gently with Absalom. It's only if they are victorious. And so we see David in the midst of all that is happening with a trust in the Lord that is so sure that he says to his commanders, when we win, this is what I want you to do. Well, in it, also makes no sense as a command. Once again, David's love for Absalom is affecting his judgment. We saw this when he failed to bring Absalom to justice for the murder of Amnon. We saw it when he believed Absalom's false show of piety to kick off the rebellion. David is caught here and his mind is betraying his intentions and his need. There's a lesson here for parents. It's dangerous to be careless with your children. They are affected by the way in which you raise them. If you are too lax and you ignore their sin, they will be emboldened in it. And if you carry discipline too far, always insisting on every point and every occasion, you will frustrate your children and you'll drive them from you. Instead, you need to follow God's example with us. Focus on the heart. Build your children up. Do not excuse their sin, but don't push them away. Remember mercy and grace. Well, that brings us to the second part of the story, the battle itself. And the description of the battle is remarkably brief. It's only two verses. And there are a few things that we can conclude from the description about how the battle was fought and how it went. But it is obvious that this is the least interesting part of the story to the Holy Spirit. After all, David's plea about Absalom is almost as long as the battle account itself. Now, the battle is arranged as we would expect. We don't know how large Absalom's army is. We're not given a numbering of it. But we do know that he followed Hushai's advice to gather all Israel from Dan in the north to Beersheba in the south and to gather them into one great army. And the text tells us that the battle was spread over the face of all the country. So it must have been large. And we know that Absalom's forces took 20,000 casualties. So it had to be a sizable army. But David's wisdom and experience, combined with Absalom's vanity and inexperience, show through. David strikes first, and he is able to choose ground that is favorable to him. He chooses a forest as a battlefield. And that negates Absalom's advantage in numbers. Because the army can't maneuver as it could on a wide open plain. You may remember from our country's own history that in the French and Indian War and in the Revolutionary War, the armies that had lesser numbers of troops used to pick battles in forests so they could hide behind trees and snipe at the enemy and stop the enemy from maneuvering and 
use guerrilla tactics more than that of mass impact. Well, David further divided his army into three, with three capable commanders. And this spread the army out, and it stopped Absalom from gathering all his forces at one point and overwhelming David. He had to meet three threats. This was a key to the battle. Well, the outcome is what we would expect. Although David is outnumbered, he does have experienced troops, superior leadership, and God's supernatural control. Do not forget chapter 17, verse 14. God is controlling this battle. And so it is a complete rout. Absalom's army is defeated and they flee. The point that is made here in the text, about 20,000 killed, reminds us of this. In ancient battles, the large number of casualties were not had in the clash of armies as they stood face to face. No, armies would fight and at one point, one army would lose their courage. And they would turn and they would run and it would be a rout. And just as you would imagine, it would be chaos and the shields would not be able to defend them and they would run over each other and they would be open to attacks and that is when the large number of casualties occurred. So that's very likely what happened in this battle. David's men and Absalom's men met. And Absalom's men were not really very thrilled about fighting for Absalom. They'd been conscripted. And so at the first chance, they turned tail and they ran. And the casualties piled up. And that sets us up for what the Holy Spirit wants us to see. The end of Absalom. That's what the bulk of the narrative covers, verses 9 to 15. And while God has decreed the destruction of Absalom, we already know that, this happens in the most Absalom fashion possible. You don't get more Absalom than the end of Absalom. Verse 9 sets it up for us. Absalom happened to meet the servants of David, while he was riding on his mule. So the picture here you should have in your mind is of Absalom's army fleeing and of him sitting on his mule and suddenly the enemy is on top of him. Now, when you think of a mule, do not think of a rude farm animal. That's not what a mule meant in the days of Israel. The mule was actually the royal mount. You may remember our Lord Jesus Christ coming into Jerusalem in the Passion Week. And he rode in on a donkey. And that was part of the reason that they hailed him as king. Because that's what the kings in Israel rode. They rode mules. And after all, mules are not lazy, slow animals. Now, they're not racehorses. They're not going to be, you know, pulling huge carriages. But... When everyone else is on foot, a mule is much faster. And the Israelites didn't have horses to speak of. And so Absalom would have had the most speed among anyone in his army. So what does Absalom do here as he sees his army fleeing, melting away, and the enemy in his face? Well, he does what Absalom would do. He runs away. 
he turns around and he begins to ride off as fast as he can away from the enemy. And I imagine in my mind's eye that as he's riding off, he looks back to see if he's making distance between himself and David's men or if they're catching up to him. And as he looks back, he comes and the mule doesn't know. The mule's just running. And the mule takes him under a tree and he comes smack into it. Now, the text doesn't tell us exactly what happened. It doesn't tell us <coughs> how big the tree limb was that he hit, where it hit him on the forehead, on the side of the head. Did it knock him unconscious or not? Did his head get caught in a branch or in a V of a branch? Or did his hair get caught? Is he struggling? Is he awake? Is he shouting? None of this we know. It's interesting that the account is very silent. For someone who speaks a lot, Absalom, there's no word here. Now, I like to think that Absalom gets his hair caught in the branches. You know Absalom's hair, right? The kind of hair that you could just picture him in the Bible of accounts, taking his hand and flipping in slow motion. You know that he measured out and cut and then weighed to see how it was, how beautiful his hair was. Absalom's hair was one of the most important things to him. And the irony here is, now it has him stuck in the tree. It's not finely combed and with a sheen. No, it's got leaves and twigs and branches all stuck through it. I think probably what's happening here is, is that he hits the branch, his hair is tied up into the branches, and lest he be scalped by falling off and his hair staying behind, he probably grabs the branch with his hands so that his hair will stay on his head. Well, but the mule doesn't know anything from that. It just keeps on going. And now Absalom is stuck in the tree, hanging onto a branch, with his hair hopelessly entwined in it, nowhere to go, no one to help him. And I can't help but think that at this point, Absalom screams like a little girl for help. That's just the kind of man he is. That's what we've seen. No one is willing to help him. They're either gone or they think, I'm not going to risk myself for this guy. And he's stuck there in the tree. Now David's men see this and they report it. Now they don't dare to do anything. Now Remember David's words to the army. But this is all comical. It's almost like something we would expect in a comedy. Until Joab hears it. Joab is all business. Look at verse 11. What? You saw him? Why then did you not strike him to the ground? And then Joab says, if you would have done that, I would have given you a handsome reward. I would have given you ten pieces of silver and a belt. But the soldiers know Joab. Joab is a man of action, and Joab has the kingdom's interest in mind. Not any soldier's interest. And the soldier says, if you would have given me a thousand pieces of silver and I had it in my hand to weigh it, there is no way I would have gone against the king's order. Because after all, Joab, you and I both know, if I'd have been brought before King David, 
and it had been told to him that I'd killed his son, you would have sat there silent. You wouldn't have defended me at all. I know you. You're not exactly a stand-up guy. And so Joab responds, again, in, in, if the situation were not so serious, it would be laughable. In verse 14, he says, I'm not going to waste my time like this with you. It's as if Joab's saying, I know I can't win this argument. I'm not going to be bothered anymore. Let's, let's just push on. I don't want to have this argument about whether or not I would be silent or whether or not. No, let's just push on. And then, man of action that he is, he grabs his javelins, goes to Absalom, and strikes him down. Joab is the initiator here. He strikes Absalom with three javelins, we're told. But then we have a scene that if this were a movie, they would go off camera. Because you have to imagine Absalom hanging in the tree, mortally wounded, and then ten men come up and hack at him with swords. The beautiful Absalom is now unrecognizable. But not a word is reported here. No pleas for mercy at all. Because this is the end of one who would oppose the Lord and his anointed. It is significant that it is both horrific and comical. Because it is ridiculous to oppose the Lord. It is foolhardy. You may think that you can oppose the Lord. But the scripture tells us that when his wrath is kindled but a little, you will be consumed. There is no hope in standing against God. Well, we then come to the aftermath of the battle. And we see two things in this aftermath. First, we have a lesson from the actions of Joab. And then we will see a lesson from the end of Absalom. Let's start with Joab and his work for the kingdom. When David had given the order to spare Absalom, who would have thought that there would actually be an opportunity to spare Absalom? No one is going to stop in the middle of a battle. Can you imagine if a battle is going on and swords are clanging off shields and people are throwing spears? Is someone going to yell, hey, hey time out. Everybody stop. Time out. Okay, we're going to take Absalom now and we're going to keep him safe. No, that's ridiculous. No one would stop the battle that way. But ironically, the situation with the tree makes this possible. It's this ridiculous nature of what happens to Absalom that actually makes David's request, his order, possible. But Joab knows that the rebellion and trouble will not end until Absalom is dead. It's the counterpoint to Ahithophel's counsel to Absalom earlier. Ahithophel told Absalom that this war will end when David is dead. You don't need to kill everyone in the other army. You just need David. He's the important one. And the same here is true for Absalom. When Absalom is dead... The rebellion is over. It will not start again. And so Joab here is used by the Lord to bring about his will. 
Recall again, chapter 17, verse 14, that we are told that the Lord had determined to bring harm or disaster on Absalom. What Joab does is at the hand of God. Absalom is defeated, and the sword truly does not depart from David's house. Joab brings about God's will. But Joab's political savvy is also highlighted by his mercy to the army. Once Absalom is killed, he has the horn blown and calls off all of the troops in verse 16. Because just like Ahithophel, Joab sees no need to destroy the enemy army. They are Israelites after all. He knows that the critical person in the rebellion is Absalom. And showing mercy to Absalom would just be extending the conflict. Ralph Davis puts it this way. He says, David would treat cancer with candy. Joab knew it required surgery. And he nominated himself as the surgeon. Joab is taking this in his own hands. God can and will... Use the rougher things and people of this world to bring about his will. Take, for example, Cyrus, the king of Persia, or the Babylonians and their capture of the promised land, or Joab here himself. But that doesn't mean that we are to emulate them. It reminds us instead that we are not to view the world as made up of forces for God, and forces against God so that we see who wins. No. God is over all things. And that should give us comfort. Well, the passage ends with this odd description of a pillar that Absalom set up. In verse 18, Absalom in his lifetime had taken up and set up for himself the pillar that is in the king's valley. For he said, I have no son to keep my name in remembrance. And he called the pillar after his own name. And it is called Absalom's monument to this day. Now the first thing that we notice about this is that it is so Absalom. He set this monument up for himself. That just wasn't done in Israel. You set up a monument to the Lord or to the victory that the Lord had given or to the tribes of Israel or perhaps even to another person, but not to yourself. Pagans did that. Pagan kings did that. We see that in the book of Daniel, for example. But Absalom wanted to be remembered. And he knew he couldn't be remembered for his family because he'd rebelled against his father. And I think it is a good deduction to take this verse in conjunction with the verse that tells us that Absalom had three sons to see that Absalom's three sons predeceased him because he had no sons to carry on his name. So, but why is that here? Why is verse 18 not back in, ver in chapter 17? Or chapter 16, when we're reading about Absalom and his life and his daughter and his sons. Why is it here and not there? 
I think verse 18 is here to point us to the importance of verse 17. And they took Absalom, and they threw him into a great pit in the forest, and raised over him a very great heap of stones. And all Israel fled, every one to his home. So you see, Absalom set up a monument for himself. But his true monument was an unmarked pit of a grave with stones thrown over it. Not exactly the common tomb for the crown prince. And this occurred after Absalom was killed. It wasn't bad enough that they hacked him into pieces. No, instead, as well, they gave him an unceremonial burial. They threw him into a pit and then piled stones on top of him. Now, why would they do that? Wouldn't that just make David even angrier? It brings us back to God's judgment on Absalom. How did Absalom die? He hung in a tree. That's a cursed death, according to God's law. And he had rebelled against his father. And the end of one who had rebelled against his father was a shameful burial that's described here in verse 17. You can go to Deuteronomy 21 and see that that was how rebels were buried. We see this over and over again in the Old Testament. When Achan is buried at Ai, they throw him into a pit and they throw stones over him. When enemy pagan kings who fought against Israel are killed, they do the same thing. It's a shameful burial. And Absalom's end, therefore, is a foreshadowing, a type of the end of all who oppose the Lord and His kingdom. They will be brought to shame. We need to see this hard reality. No one would have expected this, such an end, when Absalom was flying high. He was the toast of the town, seemingly perfect in every way. He had the world in the palm of his hand. And yet the judgment and justice of God could not be stopped. There is judgment for sin. Do you see that? There is not a moment for you to waste. No matter how comfortable you are now, you will have to come face to face with the living God and give an account of all your actions. But there is hope. Because there is another who hung on a tree. Who died under the judgment and wrath of God for sin. Jesus who knew no sin, was made sin so that you could experience grace and forgiveness. If you will just believe in Jesus, confess that you are a sinner and that you need a Savior and that that Savior is Jesus, it doesn't matter how old or young you are. Jesus was cursed so that everyone who puts their trust in Him will escape that curse and be made right with God. Listen to the warning of Absalom's life and death. Don't waste another day. Believe in Jesus Christ, who lived 
and died for sinners like you. Jesus saves. 